Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. This is The Lonely Hour, produced by Pale Groove. Before I get into today's topic and interviews, I want to tell you what exactly we're doing here. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. I'm an editor and a writer, mainly about food. But I also have a lot of feelings, loneliness being one of them. I want to explore that feeling because it's pervasive, but the literature on it is not. Each episode of The Lonely Hour is going to focus on a particular topic, whether it's a community or a profession, an age group, or an activity that seems to arouse feelings of loneliness or aloneness. That could be mental illness, for example. Or it could be social media's effect on us. It could even be motherhood. The idea is to catalog tidbits on this very human feeling. Because we all feel lonely sometimes, I want to explore how we feel it. A lot's been written about social media and loneliness. The idea that, as one Huffington Post writer put it, technology has distracted us from the age-old truths of what is most important, true friends whom we can be ourselves in front of, rather than our carefully scripted online persona. I want to find out if this quote rings true for a number of people who are heavily involved in the social media world, starting with Patrick Janelle, also known as a guy named Patrick on Instagram. Patrick has amassed 450,000 followers on Instagram and has found a way to make a career out of his social media self. He received the first ever CFDA award for Fashion Instagrammer of the Year. I think that it is very easy to see how perception of somebody changes drastically because of social media. So it may not be that somebody is affected in their personal relationships as much as those around that person tend to think differently of who that person really is. I may be the same person whether or not I have social media, but a larger perception of me changes because of the way that I present myself. Of course, I'm not going to show my kind of deepest, darkest moments on my personal social media. That's certainly not how I present myself within my world of social media. So the perception may be that that just doesn't exist. Right. I'm thinking, obviously, it is a huge topic, as you said, and maybe one recent story to look at that might help us enter into this topic is that this 18-year-old blogger from Australia, did you hear about this? I did. Senna O'Neill. She had over 250,000 YouTube and Tumblr subscribers, 60,000 Snapchat followers, and over 500,000 Instagram followers. And she was paid a lot of money to promote clothes and swimwear and health drinks. Um, but she removed most of it from the internet recently saying, without realizing I've spent the majority of my teenage life being addicted to social media, social approval, social status and physical appearance. So I wonder about that need for social approval that this kind of media bred in her was alienating and she mm -hmm. decided to go kind of quote unquote live her life. If that I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it can be alienating. Um, the fact that especially when somebody gets to a point in which one, so much attention is put on you publicly and you're also constantly bombarded with people who want to be a part of that attention, working with brands like you're making money because brands want to be part of the attention that somebody's getting. Ultimately, like a majority of your mind is taken up with thinking about all of those things. And so even if the elements of how you view yourself and like your your own self-esteem and like public approval, even if those aren't the things that you actually care most deeply about, it's what you end up focusing on so much of your time because it's like what's driving your financial situation. It's yeah. what's driving your work and your creativity. Of course, like it, it's very easy, for, I think, for those things to have detrimental effect. I mean, in this girl's case, she's now 18 at the time mm -hmm. that she's been engaged on all of these platforms for 
five or so years. I mean, she became quote, famous at 14 through these platforms. So she has very much grown up with these, always having been in existence. Sure. You've lived a life before and after the existence of social media. So you've been able to use it as a professional tool without mm -hmm. being your life. You know, it's it like is you my life. But I also, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that I'm glad that you brought up that point that I sort of existed before social media. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> but it's totally true that I definitely see social media as an extension and a fun creative tool and outlet for broadening the audience to my creativity, which is awesome. But I also totally understand in my wise old age at nearly 34, I, uh, especially in digital years, <laughs> <laughs> I feel that I have a really good sense of what the value is that these things represent within my life. And certainly right now for me, fortunately, like social media represents a huge value financially. It's, you know, it's my job. While that job is so intertwined with my daily life, I also understand that whatever I portray on social media and whatever perception of me is, is not as important as who I actually am in my day-to-day -day life and who I am like with my friends and with my family and just to myself. Right. What about, you know, there's been some talk of the truth or the lack of truth on things like Instagram because you, me, lots of people will take 20 iPhone photos before settling on one worthy of posting. And even then we, you know, use up to three editing tools. And mm -hmm. if you can expand on that. Yeah, part. sure. Like I will spend a lot of time capturing one image to post Instagram and, you know, captioning it with something maybe very quotidian, like hanging out with such and such a friend, catching up over coffee. And of course, yeah, maybe I spent, you know, several minutes taking many photos, trying to get the perfect one to showcase what that was like. The thing that's interesting is that the reason that I do that is I actually have a vision in my mind of what's happening. The experience that I'm having is actually really beautiful. But if I'm just to like take out my iPhone and snap something, like the iPhone will capture it in a way that's not particularly beautiful because it's, you really, you're, you're distilling that moment down to like a second that you can inspect every single element of what's going on. You can see the crack in the table that you might not have noticed just sitting there. And for me, it's about being able to capture an image that represents how I experienced the moment. Right. Even you're, if well, it's you're not, not necessarily a reporter right. through Instagram. You are, this is a, this is a magazine in a way. Yeah, you know? absolutely. This is an aspirational it, place that people have landed in when they go to your account. I totally think so. And in the way, I mean, the, the idea, the, comparison to a magazine, I think is really accurate. We both come from editorial worlds in which we understand how much work goes into one shot for an opener for a story. And in order to capture something beautifully that's compelling to somebody, you might have to go through more work and there might have to be set up and there might have to be thinking about what materials were used and what props were used and all of these things. I don't necessarily think that that's less authentic or less real. It is in some ways a heightened version of reality. And it is also by excluding some of the details, I don't think that something becomes inauthentic. It's just showcasing a certain side of. But it can inspire depression and disappointment in the, in the lives of yeah, people who aren't yeah. living as well edited, you know. I, I never want anybody to think that like my life is just so perfect. Like I would hope that many people out there would realize Maybe I'm slightly naive that I think that everybody realizes that there is some effort that goes into taking like a beautiful photograph. I certainly in no way wish to project that everything is just sort of like nonchalantly thrown up on Instagram and it's immediately perfect. I would love for people to know that like, sure, I put, I actually take some time and effort to like capture beautifully the moments that I'm having. So, right. well, and of course it's not your job to worry about the possible depression that right. might come from an average viewer's, you know, feelings about your images. It's just an interesting thing to talk about in this time when we're all on these platforms and how yeah. it might be affecting us at large, as much as we hate making sweeping generalizations. For sure. Well, you know, I went through my own period of time when I was living in Germany, um, just kind of doing my freelance graphic design jobs with my partner at the time. And I was watching many friends who I knew from school and from um, 
other work that I had done previously who were kind of flourishing in creative communities online. Flickr was really big at the time, so a lot of people were kind of gaining followings and becoming parts of communities through the the world of Flickr. Concurrently with Twitter, Twitter was 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 young and people were really starting to build communities and friendships through Twitter, and I was seeing a lot of my friends grow their own creative ambitions through those communities and I was like kind of sitting watching and it was interesting because I never I didn't necessarily feel like anything was not true about what anybody else was doing but I also felt like I was a slightly sad that I didn't have anything to contribute or that I wasn't really part of those conversations and what it boiled down to for me is Instagram actually really makes sense for me just as a medium Twitter never really did like I'm not as much of a words person as I am a visual person. I spent a good bit of time not being depressed for sure, but definitely I, I think there was like a lonely feeling attached to being sort of outside of that community of people that I felt were really flourishing. Of course, being so happy for my friends who were doing something great, but being saddened by the fact that that none of that really made sense to me in a way that I felt like I could kind of use those platforms to showcase my creativity. Did it take Instagram coming around and you discovering that this was your platform to get out of that feeling of loneliness? Or was well, there another the way in which thing, it wore off? Or... Yeah, the interesting thing was I was also living in Germany in a different culture where I was also isolated by language and somewhat culture. I knew plenty of people that spoke English, but you know, there still was a, a huge divide between me and and the people that were around me because of language. So I think that all of those things kind of contributed to what I was feeling. At the same time that I I basically joined Instagram a couple months after I moved to New York City. So I was suddenly like back physically in a community of people that I could communicate with more easily and was in a place where I felt with ambition I could create a community of people that that I could identify with and sort of flourish together with, while at the same time developing a digital life and persona and community on Instagram. And so the, I think it really, it actually was the two things together. It wasn't just the medium of Instagram being great for me, it was also my physical surrounding. Do you get lonely ever? Yeah, I do. Uh, to be honest, I think that a lot of the the amount of things that I do and the amount of projects that I take on and my willingness to just be working all the time and pursue all of my projects in some ways is a way for me to kind of ignore what life would be like if I weren't busy all the time. The moment that I feel like, oh, I've kind of accomplished everything for like the moment. I don't have anything that's like super pressing and I can just sit at home by myself I've suddenly become lonely and a little sad and I think that a lot of the things I do are kind of diversions just within life I love doing them all um, I love Spring Street Social Society I love Instagramming I love building a brand I love being strategic about the way that I'm using social media I love um, the company that I'm building with my brothers the liquor cabinet all of those things I really love and enjoy I notice in the moments when I'm not busy and when I'm not doing something, immediately I'm left with nothing but myself, and that's lonely. Molly Guy uses all the social media platforms at her fingertips to promote her bridal showroom, Stone Fox Bride. Doing so helps her business, but it might also do other things. I think we live in a really annoying time, and I become annoyed with myself for being right smack dab in the middle of it, I have to say. Hmm. How do you mean, you know, how well, is it an annoying time? You know, a big part of my business and my quote-unquote success is about creating sort of this, like, culture or this idea or this image of this certain way of life, and a lot of that is done through visuals and a lot of it's done through writing and a lot of it's done through the people that get married and go kind of like spread the love, like our branding and our messaging. 
And Mm -hmm. that's great. I feel really good about that professionally. But I think that I didn't come of age in a time where I could look at my phone and, and see what everyone else was doing or the images of themselves that they were projecting and that kind of ambassadorship of perfection that we're all putting forth on social media. Listen, if you're picking up your phone and scrolling through Instagram, you're just as culpable as the person who's posting the picture. Right. It's like when I was a kid, I was an irate feminist when I was 15 years old, but I didn't have to be reading the fashion magazines and blaming Kate Moss for my eating disorder. Do you know what I mean? Right. But when I was growing up, the world of fashion and media and Hollywood was really impenetrable, which is what made it special. Like, we didn't know how it existed or who celebrities were or what they ate. They just were sort of these, like, you know, larger-than-life creatures. And there was something about the fact that they were unattainable that made them so sexy. And now everyone's attainable. I think the cover of the style section yesterday was about, like, Kate Hudson's celebrity and how... The reason why she's so famous is because she pretends she's so not famous or she's so real or she's so regular. Mm-hmm. What's real is, you know, what's what's real and, and should I stop talking again? I'm sorry. That nah, let's just roll through this one. Uh, <laughs> intimacy has not, like intimacy, um, the world of social media is not an intimate world. It's not a world that encourages us to get intimate with ourselves or with other people. And I think that's where relationships and love really live and intimacy and discomfort and growth. I think that's where it happens. Hmm. What about, are you, so you mean in intimacy and discomfort, those two things together? Yeah, I think there's a lot of discomfort in intimacy. Interesting. How, how have you experienced that? I don't know. When I look back at times of my life where I have felt really vulnerable in an intimate moment, it's it's uncomfortable. Right. And I guess I'm, you know, kind of relating this to what I just said about social media. Um, it looks to me like everyone who's putting up pictures of them as a mom or as a wife um, is kind of trying to create this portrait, this this illusion of hominess and intimacy that they're having with themselves. Sorry, do you want me to dr- go unplug the phone right now? <laughs> no, but we can just, we'll just roll through it. All right. Um, intimacy that is uh, that that we are these creatures who like, you know, eat avocado toast and have teepees in our houses and love to cuddle with our friends and our kids and our husbands and wear thick socks. And that's stupid. That's not what intimacy is, and that's not what love is, and that's not what relationships are. But the two have become really intertwined in this strange climate we live in. Kinsman is the editor-at-large of Tasting Table and the author of High Anxiety. She'll be talking about that book, which deals with anxiety, in an upcoming episode. But for this one, I wanted to include what she said about the intimacy that can sometimes only come from the channels social media provides us. We live in such an interesting time that you can plug yourself into other people without having to leave your house. And I wonder if that is a good thing or a bad thing. I Mm -hmm. think about that an awful lot because I do go into phases where it's really hard for me to leave my house because there's, you know, a slight tendency toward agoraphobia with the particular kind of anxiety I have. But I know I can go right on Twitter. I can go right on, you know, any other sort of social media platform or text a friend and I feel much less alone. I think there's a divide for me because there's social media with people I do know and with people I don't know. I've been lucky enough to have some of the closest people in my life be people who I met through social media. Mm. And I think I might be an outlier in this because of what I happen to write about. There's this a potentially intimate connection where strangers come to me in a really vulnerable way. 
and uh, because there isn't the physical awkwardness of hey can I here's here you know we're trying to know each other awkwardly over coffee we can go right to the headspace to that 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 place where we are actually living um, that where there is there aren't these layers between um, there isn't that vulnerability that that comes from that that's that strange social interaction somebody will pop right into my Twitter DMs somebody I don't know and say, I see you out there. Help me. I mean, I think when it comes down to all of us just want to be seen, we want Mm. somebody to see us there and acknowledge that they see us. I always joke that my, my dogs are, are sort of like that where they they walk over to me and they just, and I'll say to them, I see you, you know, (laughs) they just want to be acknowledged. And I think there's something in us that just, that just wants that. You know, I, I, I do go through phases, you know, we're, uh, you know, moving into a time when, you know, it gets darker out there earlier and it gets cold. And if I could, you know, have a tranquilizer dart shot into my neck and not wake up till April, that would be great. (laughs) It's it's sort of hard for me to leave the house. Um, I think, I think if I didn't have that particular way of connecting with people, it would make me feel incredibly alienated if I was just stabbing out into the dark to, for somebody to see me. But I think I've made a safe harbor mm. for, for a lot of people. So I maybe am in a position where people are reaching out to me. Sydney Engelberg is on the faculty of the Hebrew University and Ono Academic College, both in Jerusalem. He wrote a three-part series on the loneliness of social media on Psychology Today after a particular photo of him went viral. The photo showed Engelberg holding a student's baby while teaching his class, a simple gesture meant to calm down the fussy child and allow its mother to focus. Apparently, another student snapped the image and posted it to Facebook without Engelberg's knowledge, and soon it went viral. Interview requests came to the professor from around the world. I suspect that this photo for many people was the equivalent of a Rorschach test. Now, you know, if you're familiar with Rorschach inkblot tests, you know that they are these ambiguous shapes that are shown to individuals and people are asked to say what they see. Mm-hmm. And what happens in a situation where something is ambiguous is that people project onto the ink block all kinds of personal priorities, concerns, ways of thinking. And I think that my photo functioned as a type of Rorschach block that the people simply projected onto my photo all kinds of things that they lacking in life and that they're looking for in life. And so uh, I ended up you know, receiving this incredible number, I'm talking about literally thousands, of emails, Facebook friendship requests, messages from all over the place saying how I was an example of humanity, how I was an example of uh, true education, how I was an example of male identification with feminist values. Uh, It just went on and on and on. And people projected all of these different things onto the photograph. So that's one way of looking at it, but it doesn't really explain the social media side of it, which is why so many people felt a need to like it, to share it, to pass it on. And you know, as I wrote in uh, those articles or those blogs on psychology today, it seemed to me that for many of the people, what they were actually searching for was an opportunity to be part of a human encounter. In part one of the series, you, you said that the activity on social media ultimately showed a deep underlying sense of loneliness. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Can you explain what you saw and how it read as such? Well, look, let me approach the answer from a slightly different direction. Okay. And that is, if you take a look at the academic literature in a wide range of different fields, I'm talking about literature in positive psychology on the research on happiness. I'm talking about literature in the field of business administration, 
looking at management and leadership. I'm talking about research in the field of education. I'm talking about research in the field of human relations management and cognitive psychology. Seemingly very, very diverse fields, but all of them stress certain common findings. And those are, number one, that people are searching for authenticity, that people are searching for engagement, that people can improve their lives through mindfulness. Now, all of those are activities that require, first of all, an enormous amount of self-reflection and self-awareness. And secondly, they require an ability to interact in a meaningful way with others. Now, when all that you're doing is staring at your cell phone and whatever pops up either on your Facebook page or whatever particular platform, Instagram, Pinterest, you are most comfortable with, how on earth do you achieve that level of self-reflection and self-awareness, which is going to ensure that you are authentic in your interactions, that you are able to engage others and to feel engaged, that you are able to practice mindfulness. You, you just can't do it. Mm. Well, conversely, what are examples of meaningful connection? Well, I think any number of um, quite uh, straightforward examples. All you need to do is take a look at the way that a parent looks at their new infant and their new infant looks back at them to see an authentic and meaningful and engaged connection. It's not the same thing as looking at a photo of your infant. Is there a way to articulate what's involved in that look or that gaze that isn't there well, on Facebook? Uh, there is a way to do so. It's, um, it's rather complex, though. Hmm. And the, the easiest way that I can encapsulate it is to break it down into three overlapping areas. The one area is the area of emotional intelligence that most people are familiar with, at least in terms of the terminology. And, you know, that involves self-awareness and self-regulation and uh, directed motivation and uh, empathy and uh, components of that nature. The second area is the area of social skills and social skills involves skills such as the ability to collaborate, the ability to be part of a team, the ability to negotiate, the ability to resolve conflict, the ability to um, meaningfully um, communicate with others. So that's a second area overlapping with uh, emotional intelligence. And uh, the third area is the area of cognitive skills. And cognitive skills are our problem-solving skills, our um, decision-making skills, you know, all of those skills that we use in order to deal with real-life situations. And once again, um, I can only repeat what I've said previously, mm -hmm. you're not going to get emotional intelligence nor social skills nor the cognitive skills from simply looking at your social media page, uh, whether it's mobile or on PC. Right. But I mean, we're still living lives, going to work, interacting with people there, uh, carrying on, you know, quote unquote, real relationships in addition to being connected well, on social media. So would you say that we're really in a in a dire situation well, or just that well, things are changing based on our the, well, the rise I, of the use I, of these things? I don't think anybody has hmm. at this point in time a um, 
well-founded answer to that question because first of all we're in a transition phase we have no idea what the generation who are today four five six seven eight nine years old and who are totally glued to cell phones to ipads and so on how they are going to interact as adults we only know how current adults interact with one another and younger adults who are already in a transition phase but they are not a generation who have known nothing but that kind of interaction the other thing that is very very unclear is one of the problems that we know at least on a statistical point of view is that there's been an explosion in terms of diagnosed individuals with learning disabilities it doesn't really matter what the nature of the learning disability is but you know the figures are astonishing though i i saw one recent research report that in 2000 approximately um around 45% of our school children were diagnosed as having learning disabilities in 2014 that it skyrocketed to almost 45%. Now is this a misleading statistic is it simply that we are more aware of uh, the phenomenon um, or is something going on I don't know. Right. I don't think anybody at this point knows. But one thing we do know that one of the great myths of the last few decades is the myth of multitasking. And I don't need to tell you because I'm sure you've seen it in the popular literature all over the place that people have been encouraged to develop their ability to multitask. There's been all of this uh, pop psychology written about how women are better at multitasking than men are etc etc this is one of the great myths of the last few decades because all of the hard research certainly in cognitive psychology and the neurosciences show that people are incapable of multitasking what people are able to do is to shift their attention very very quickly from one task to another but invariably what happens is that the quality of their ability to deal with the specific tasks deteriorates because of the shift from one task to another so that if people focus and concentrate on just one task without interruptions without disruptions the quality of the work the productivity the effectiveness of what they do is significantly greater than if they're constantly being interrupted disrupted and switching from one task to another and you would Now, say this is the same thing that's happening with our use of social media in terms of exactly. meaningful connection so we're sitting in front of somebody having a coffee but we're looking at our phones and shifting attention exactly. back and forth and so you're switching your attention the whole time that has to impact on the quality of the interaction between the two of you and the nature of the relationship and how does that translate into loneliness it's not accidental nor coincidental that probably the best known text in social psychology is Elliot Aronson's text which was titled the social animal we are biologically social animals we are built biologically and genetically to be part of social groups as such when we are not part of a social group we inevitably feel a sense of loneliness it's just built into us it's part of our psyche now when people are inadvertently because they're certainly not doing it intentionally but when they inadvertently create situations 
where they are not interacting in a really meaningful way with others and in an authentic way and in an engaged way and in a mindful way with others, then that impacts our basic psyche and the fact that we are not allowing ourselves to be the social animals that we are. And the inevitable outcome is loneliness. Increasingly, we see people talking about the need to unplug. You know, and the idea is that because of the pressure and the stress and negative uh, social impact of too much social media, too much technology, too much engagement with things computerized. We need to unplug from time to time in order to recharge our batteries, refresh ourselves, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a terrific idea, but the fact of the matter is that if we look at Jewish tradition, that's precisely what at least observant Jews have been doing for 2,500 years, which is the Jewish day runs from sunset to sunset. So sunset Friday evening is the onset of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And if you're an observant Jew, what you do with the onset of the Sabbath is that you switch off all your cell phones, television, no DVDs, nothing. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't uh, enjoy um, electricity, uh, but what do you do on the Sabbath? You do two things. First of all, it is traditional for all of the family to get together for the Friday evening Sabbath meal. And because there are no distractions, there's no television, there's no radio, there's no cell phones, there's no uh, PCs, there's no iPads, there's no distractions, you interact with each other. And the second thing that you do is that you, you think. You, you're not being either entertained or occupied with work or in some way distracted by uh, extraneous things. You have to think. And I believe it was the existential philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who said that boredom is the fear of being alone with yourself. And when you think about it, that's a very, very profound statement because what it really boils down to is that when people say, I'm bored, what they're really saying is, I don't have the resources, the, the personal resources and the psychic resources to fill in my time meaningfully. I need something external to fill in that void which exists within myself. And I think there's a huge amount of truth to that. Right. So if boredom is the fear of being with yourself, then the opposite is true as well. Where you really are able to reflect and to just Think about what's significant in your life, what's meaningful in your life, what your priorities are, what your value system is, and so on, then you're not bored because you're reflecting. What's the solution? You know, how do we overcome loneliness and create meaningful connections? You've said the Jews do it through having that day off, so to speak. What are other ways that we can do this? I think there are a number of ways. The, the fact that there's been an explosion of articles on mindfulness is a reflection of exactly this, because all of the material on mindfulness stresses the need to 
detach from what you typically do and to engage in things that you wouldn't typically do. So for too many people, mindfulness is equated with meditation. But meditation is only one means of achieving mindfulness. You can achieve mindfulness in other ways as well. Uh, just uh, for example, by consciously paying attention to the experience that you're going through in the moment, that's being mindful. Now, um, you know, I'm sure you've observed in the same way as I have, people going to all kinds of events and experiencing all kinds of experiences, but they're so caught up with taking selfies or reporting where they are to you know, friends or posting it on Facebook uh, or whatever, they aren't really paying attention to the experience itself. Right. There's the joke, you know, it didn't happen if we didn't tweet it or... Exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, the opposite is true, that if you're so right. busy tweeting it, you're not really experiencing what is happening. So there are many, many ways to achieve these meaningful connections, but they all require a degree of self-awareness, self-reflection, self-regulation. How do you achieve this? When the selfie becomes an end in itself or the tweet becomes an end in itself, then there's no possibility of having something really meaningful. I mean, it, 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 take a tweet, a tweet which we haven't uh, really spoken about. 126 characters. How deep and meaningful a conversation can you have with 126 characters? You can't. Mm. You can't. So I'm not in any way arguing that you can't have very meaningful, even inspirational material on social media. You can, but only when that material has a narrative quality to it. That is to say, it tells a complete and full story that people can identify with, that people can even be inspired by. Let's not confuse that with the actual platform itself. The platform is just a means. Most of the comments, uh, I would say somewhere in the region of 95%, are simply comments like, you're a great man, um, fantastic. Continue being an example to the world. I mean, they're not profound comments at all, which is a reflection once again of exactly what we've been discussing. Right. People are trying to reach out, but they don't really know how to do that in a very effective way. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is another reflection of loneliness. Only in her freshman year at Brown, Anna Caltibiano has done a lot of thinking on this topic, both for the Huffington Post and in two novels. It was, in a huge way, it was about loneliness. And it was about loneliness that I think we all feel to some extent. But I wanted to explore that feeling in a world where we had to choose whether to feel everything, including that nasty sense of loneliness, including that frustration you feel of why do I feel this way, should be happy, and feel everything, including that, including the good, or feel nothing at all. As you put it, uh, mm -hmm. you pose the question, quote, if you could choose a world without loneliness, without shame, grief, misery, or feeling of any kind, would you if it also meant that you lost the simple pleasure of a picnic on a sunny day or the joy of falling in love? That was really my way of exploring things on the page as I was living through that difficult time between middle school and high school. I saw that around me. I saw that in myself to some extent. And I knew that we were all dealing with it. Mm. But there wasn't much online that I could find. It was a lot of facts and statistics. I wanted to find 
a way that ex- I could explore it through fiction. Tell me about that time, like, it, or how do you think now that you have a little perspective on it, loneliness was something you were feeling so acutely, and how did you see it around you? Was it in kind of everybody around you or your peer group specifically? I think it wasn't everyone around me, and I think it still isn't everyone around me. It's the idea that now in the 21st century, we have social media, we have all these ways to connect to people half a world away. So therefore, we should be happy. We should be fulfilling that human need to connect. Um, But I think social media, in some ways, it's a bit dangerous that it provides this illusion of being connected. And when we have this illusion of being connected, we no longer seek it out. Yeah, Um, well, expand on that. We've satisfied that. Yeah, I mean, the the article that you wrote in the Huffington Post, it's called Loneliness in the Age of Social Networking. And you you talk about just that. Social media can satisfy some aspects of our human need to connect, but not all of it. In your experience, can you explain what it does and doesn't do for us? In my experience, I look at it in kind of two camps. One, social media, you can either use it as a substitute for direct face-to-face communication Or you can also use it as a supplement for direct face-to-face human communication. And it's how you use it. I look at it as kind of being lonely in this age of social media. It's kind of like being lonely in a crowd. That you have all these people around you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can connect to each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's easy to mask the fact that you feel lonely. When you look online and you see that you have 500 Facebook friends and you think that, okay, have that need satisfied. And then you might feel frustrated because you still feel lonely and you think, you know, what's wrong with me? And that can kind of lead down a different trail. But it's, it's so easy to, to hide the fact even from yourself. And, and I look at this and I think, I wonder if people had this same sort of is social media good, is social media bad when telephones were first introduced. Mm. Of course, I wasn't even around when cell phones started first being a thing, but I wonder if, if, people, if people wondered if phones would replace human contact, like they're wondering now with social media. Do you feel you call your daughter or your friend instead of meeting them face to face? Right. Or on the other hand, do you find that having a phone only increases the opportunities you have to talk to them? Another example of this kind of thing is in that Huffington Post article on loneliness, you open with a scene in which you and a friend who lives out of the country are spending a Friday night watching a movie together. It's through screen sharing, though. So you weren't together in person you're spending time together. I mean, would you say this is an example of a way in which this is new technology, it's not social media per se, but is this an example of a way in which those new technologies can satisfy our need for connection or that it's kind of a poor try? I think it's, it can definitely help satisfy our need for connection if we use it as a supplement. I think right. definitely if, if all I did was screen share and, and chat away in my small room um, with no outside face-to-face communication, I think that would drive me a bit insane. Right. And uh, and I definitely don't think that's healthy, but a nice balance. And it's hard to know where the balance lies, and I think that's also very different for each person. Right. Your writing does focus on the loneliness side of this, so I wonder if you're seeing that a lot in your peers. On, on, the, on your Facebook page's bio, you classify your writing as focusing on an adolescent generation consumed by social apathy and self-loathing and that can only find solace through these electronic connections. Why is that such an important issue to you to explore? I think it, it all comes down with my idea of, of I really do think that everyone has that certain amount of loneliness in them, for good or for bad. And when you throw social media into the mix, when you see on Facebook that there's this girl who looks absolutely perfect to you, that she, she's beautiful and she has all these pictures to prove it, she has thousands of friends, and you have the numbers there in front of you to prove that, and she's living a wonderful life because you see all the pictures of the events she goes to, it makes you feel a little more lonelier. And you can 
beat yourself up about that and say, why am I not like her? Why, what's wrong with me? Um, everyone else is also like this. What's wrong with me? Cause I don't feel that way. And everyone else looks happy. And I think social media is this way where all of a sudden you get to really see that it's put in front of your face. And once you multiply that by all the other social media platforms and all the, the millions of people who look happy, it can seem daunting. It can seem isolating. But when you examine that, it's, it's interesting because everyone's trying to put their best foot forward. They're photoshopping a little bit sometimes. They're choosing which photos to put online. They're trying to take photos at events to show that they were there because now it seems like if you don't take a photo, you weren't really there, <laughs> you know, and you're, you're geotagging like crazy and using hashtags and all to feel a part of something. And everyone is doing this. It's definitely a balance. I used to not have a Facebook for the longest time, and I would miss out on all these events. Or it would just be that much harder for me because I'd have to ask someone, oh, can you email that to me? I didn't see that it was there. And they go, oh, sure, but it's always that extra few minutes of sending that over or um, people talking about something and me having to ask for a little more background because I didn't see it on Twitter it's a bit difficult when you're a teenager and everyone else's vocabularies are built upon social media. It's definitely like a common language. And when you're missing a part of that, you feel like you're a bit left out. But I think social media can also be really used to start these meaningful communications. Mm -hmm. You can have a really shy boy who doesn't feel comfortable reaching out. And all of a sudden, if he has the internet and he has another opportunity to reach out to people and he starts building up friends from other countries who might share similar views, also be shy, also be a little hesitant to reach out to the people around them face to face, he might find some confidence and that might be a bit of a building block to talk to people face to face around him. For more, head to thelonelyhour.com. <laughs>